So Jordan, I have a bit of an announcement to make. Okay, what is it? I guess is I guess is a good place. It's as good a place as any to announce that I'm officially challenging Ken Klippenstein. It's enough of this. Enough of this ban. Uh, getting around the ban on the podcast. I'm challenging Ken to a cage fight. Wow. I'm officially this is my official challenge. We're gonna settle our differences in the octagon. Okay. If he accepts, I don't know. He might not, but... What prompted this? I don't know. Just, you know, I thought it would be fun to... You just want to? Yeah. You know, I've never I've never been in a fight at all, so why not just go escalate that right ahead, right, right, right to cage-style cage MMA battle? Okay, I feel like that's I like the it. next logical step. And I don't know. Ken is just, you know, he's Ken. He knows what he did. And uh, he does. Yeah. We'll leave it at that. We'll let the listeners fill in the blanks because they know okay. as well. And they've been, they, we've, we've heard a lot of frustration from our listeners about the repeated violations of the, the ban and the, the insurgents HQ security protocols as well. That's supposed to keep him off the premises and it just keeps repeatedly, repeatedly getting violated. So, you know, I guess we have to figure things out uh, like real men. Yeah. Back when men were men, that's what they did. Challenged each other to cage matches. <laughs> I I think what Ken really needs to take into consideration as he hears your request or your challenge rather is that you have been training in no rules street fighting for years. <laughs> that's right. That's right. <laughs> that's true. Um that has been there's no actual like v- photo or video evidence of this, but you're going to have, people are going to have to take my word on it. And I, you know, I think people look at me, they say, what's this guy? He's like middle-aged, he's schlubby, dad bod. That's all a facade. Okay. That's, that's masking an inner strength. Okay. That you don't just see that on the outside. It's not what it's about the, the appearances, you know, internally, there's something, there's something else going on than that. And you know, Ken's going to find out the hard way about what that is. I think we need to start cutting promos, <laughs> like in wrestling. This was like, yeah, when this I see was Ken, kind of a promo. When I see Ken yeah. in the octagon, I'm going to squash him like a bug. <laughs> and then I'll be, just going to be kind of the hype man standing next to you, holding the belt, or just like a yeah. microphone. Yeah. And I like well, it. Save, it. save it for the match, guys. Save it for the match. This is great. I think this is a great development. Yeah. No, I'm not going to fight. I'm not going to fight Ken. I'm not going to. I'm not no, you should. Ken I'm all in on this idea. Match. No, you have to. I'm, I'm already too excited about it. Yeah. I'm not letting you back out of this now. <laughs> that would really be something else. I think that would be a really sad state of affairs for people to see me in that kind of a situation. I don't know. Maybe I, does Ken work out? I don't know. Yeah. Not that I know of. I mean, he works out his mind and that is the most powerful muscle of them. all. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Well, we'll see. Anyway, I bring it up. I, I don't know if this is even happening, but you know, I was obviously making a reference to 
this apparent uh, MMA cage fight between Elon Musk and Mark Zuckerberg, which seems, I mean, both parties have agreed to it. So it would seem weird now if someone was to back out, it would seem kind of a little lame now that it's been agreed upon. So who are you picking in that? Zuckerberg, without a doubt. I, I, Zuckerberg, yeah. look, he's corny. He's weird. He is not a good person, <laughs> but there is at least a history, maybe a brief history, but a history of him documenting and broadcasting that he does exercise and that he does do things like strenuous hikes or runs or circuit workouts. And also I think he has some judo or BJJ, whatever, some martial art class that he has been taking for a while. Musk in typical Elon Musk fashion makes a lot of bold claims in response. People lap it up. And that is, you know, within, oh, I've done this, I've done that. And I did his line, no rules street fighting, like train, quote, no rules street fighting. You know, that that class that's available at every martial arts studio, no rules street fighting. How do you train for that? And people just lap it up. Are you just going around just picking picking fights with people outside of the bar on Friday (laughs) night or whatever? Like that's, I'd love to see Musk doing that. That'd be very funny. The only history that we have that we know of of him being in a fight is him getting the shit kicked out of him in middle school i remember that because it was framed as like oh i'm being bullied or whatever i was a victim of bullying and then you had the actual story came out you realized he was actually the being the piece of shit in that situation but yeah 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 i i i, I checked the library book out today because i wanted to see i got the ebook just to see what was mentioned in that biography and it it's his word to the writer that he was just bullied and picked on and they threw him down a flight of stairs and he was hospitalized. And then, as you say, it came out a few years ago. His dad told uh, a reporter that, no, it was actually Elon who was making fun of a kid whose parents had died. And that kid and that kid's friends kicked the shit out of Elon Musk in response. So that's the only fight that we know of that he's been in. Listen, I'm not going to body shame anybody, okay? I'm not going to. I will just say that the last time Musk was seen and photographed shirtless, he was not looking great. I'll just say that much, you know? He didn't look like someone that's like ready to ready to have his body at a moment's notice be put through this rigorous kind of physical activity. What I thought was funny was this guy, he's like a right wing kind of try hard uh thought leader podcaster who is an Elon fanboy who has built up an audience in part through being an Elon fanboy. And he, he tweeted yesterday, I did an impromptu training session with Elon Musk for a few hours yesterday. I'm extremely impressed with the strength, power and skill on the feet and on the ground. It was epic. It's really inspiring to see Elon and Mark doing martial arts, but I think the world is served far better if they train martial arts, but not fight in the cage. That said, as Elon says, the most entertaining outcome is the most likely. I'm there for them, no matter what. All that says to me is the guy who posted it is a fucking geek. Like, you getting you getting <laughs> thrown around on the mat, yeah. probably staged because you love him so much. Please kick my ass, sir. 
All that says to me yeah. is you're the weak one. It's like that Aikido demonstration with Steven Seagal when he's just like very lazily like dispatching like 12 guys. <laughs> They're all flying around and flipping around. He's like looks like bored with the whole endeavor. It was like one of those situations. You you have to read that book that I, I mentioned a couple episodes ago about the action movie figures of the 80s and 90s, yeah. the last action heroes. Every Steven Seagal story in that book is a gem. It is so funny yeah, how reviled he is by so many people in that industry and how they all laugh at him, yeah. including like on set about him directly in front of him. Listen, I love those early 90s Steven Seagal movies. Hard to Kill, one of my favorite action flicks. Under Siege, really good. I rewatched that the other day. It's excellent. But... He did have this like totally unearned reputation as being like legitimately, genuinely tough, and I, which he I think he believed himself, and had this like arrogant attitude about it. I remember there was a story about him. He was training with uh, famed uh, mixed martial artist uh, Jean Labelle, and Jean Labelle choked him out like during one session, causing him to uh, defecate in his pants as well. Yes, yeah. So yeah, I, I don't doubt that. Some of those stories are very funny. I do love those films, but really kind of funny, funny character. That's Steven Seagal. Yeah, that uh, that story is in the book and one of the ones that just had me rolling. It was it's fantastic. Uh, <laughs> yeah. A lot of instances like that. And just the crew is just laughing at him because he's just so obviously a fraud. He yeah, he was yeah. like that. He was in that wave of guys that did their own stunts and new martial arts and especially him and Jean-Claude Van Damme and like really went to their heads. But both of them just fell off yeah. so hard. I think Aikido in general, like when you talk to people that are into martial arts, it's like not even really viewed as being a legitimate thing. <laughs> like It's not like a real kind of fighting style. I still love the movies though. I'll tell you what I watched. I rewatched Under Siege the other day. Holds up. Who do we got coming on the show today? We've got Matt Binder joining us today. He hasn't been on since 2020. Like summer of 2020. Do you remember that? Yeah. I remember when he came it's been, on. It's been a while. It's weird that we've been doing the show for such a long time now. And you can talk about that. Like so much has happened since the last time that we spoke to Matt Binder. I feel like a completely different person. And, <laughs> you know, but, you know, here, yeah. here we are week in, week out, still doing this program. I'm looking forward to catching up with them. I mean, he's been doing so much work covering twitter and covering must take over on twitter like just over the last uh year or so so it's going to be interesting to get his his uh perspective on that and how that's been going um considering he's played such close attention to what has happened you know with twitter's advertisers with everything that they've been trying to do with the whole success or failure of the twitter blue rollout he's been really immersed in that from uh, from moment one, so I'm interested to get his feedback on his findings about whether it's been a successful run so far from uh, Musk. Yeah, he he has seemed to really get under the skin of maybe Musk, but definitely people at Twitter. They, out of spite, gave him a Twitter blue check mark, <laughs> despite not subscribing, which I find extremely funny. This really petty behavior. Uh, this was in the wave of all of these people losing their check marks and refusing to sign up for Twitter Blue. So in response, they just made people who had spoken out against it 
take these check marks. It's yeah. been that was I think a, a real low point for this for this company, but they they find new lows all the time. And that's innovation. So so good on them. However, earlier this week we talked to John Iderola of the Damage Report. He joined us to discuss RFK's shirtless workout video, his campaign, whether or not those muscles are in fact real. Talk about a genuine tough guy. <laughs> RFK? Uh, honestly, I yeah. would take him over Musk, Musk and uh, Zuckerberg at the same time. You think so? I feel like he would get gassed quick, you know? Um, it seems to be very superficial, as we talked about with John. I still, honestly, thinking back on it in our conversation, I still think that I, I believe them that that was at the end of his set. Like I, I, or his end okay. of end of his workout, it was his final set. I, I do believe that he was doing like a drop set, or he was just going to failure. I, I I'm in that camp. I still think the whole thing is ludicrous, okay. but I do think he probably is way stronger yeah. than 115. It's still funny to laugh at. I'm going to. <laughs> but I can acknowledge. And I it. will too. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, we also talked about a story out of Florida. Where corporations, if DeSantis signs this bill, the GOP-controlled legislature sent it his way, they want to give corporations the right to block business regulations at the local level. That is a nightmare, and it's part of this ongoing wave of things that we're seeing in state legislatures that are not just pro-corporate and pro-business policies. They are ultimately leading to a total and complete corporate capture of the government. It's really alarming stuff. We had a great time with John. You can get that episode and every premium episode we have ever done and will continue to release at insurgentspod.com. It's just five bucks a month. That's right. And we love and appreciate all our wonderful paid interns uh, who help support this program and keep it on the air. Um, and we've been delivering, I think, a lot of really great content for the for the subscribers of the show. And that's uh, another example of that, that episode with John. Always a pleasure to catch up with him. What do you say we bring on Matt Binder now? Let's do it. <laughs> okay. So Matt Binder is going to be joining the show right after this. Now we're joined by Matt Binder. It's been three years. You were last here in the summer of 2020. Matt, what's new? How are you? Not much has happened since then, so, yeah. Oh, man. Yeah, I know. Uh, <laughs> it didn't feel like that long. Yeah. I mean, we could just pick yeah. up from where we left off. You know, uh, how's the lockdown <laughs> treating you guys? Uh, how's the pandemic? We're really looking forward to those <laughs> vaccines. Um. Imagine, imagine if we were actually still locked down. Like it's yeah. been three years of lockdown. That would have been uh, pretty. Uh, it would probably have its uh, negatives, that, obviously, but probably its positives too. And not to not to lie, that'd be uh, be completely honest with you guys. Yeah, I think the main thing that I'm thinking about is if they are are able to roll out a vaccine in the coming months. I think what we all understand is that no matter what political differences there are, people are going to be able to come together and say, you know what, this is great. This is good. This is a way to step forward to, you know, not having this big public health crisis. And I think we can all agree, regardless of the differences, that that's going to be, uh, that's going to be a big help. So that's what I'm looking forward to, really. 
Yeah, I mean, I can't imagine anything going wrong, all right? Everyone, everyone's going to get vaccinated, no questions asked. Everyone wants to get back to normal, uh, how it was before this now three-year ongoing <laughs> lockdown. Uh, uh, amazingly, there's been no protests, no people demanding their hair being cut, no people demanding restaurants <laughs> being opened and serving them uh, hand, uh, and with whatever. I don't even know. Uh, yeah, but luckily everyone's been kumbaya since. It's been great. We're all on the same page. You know, that it really is something that I think about a lot when it comes to the vaccines and the way that that's become so politicized. And now not even the COVID vaccine. Like now you see figures like RFK Jr., rising to prominence who have like sort of spread kind of vaccine misinformation about every vaccine or this is the idea of vaccination in general. And it really is amazing to think about how that would have been different had Trump won that election. And if the vaccine had rolled out under Trump and all the MAGA people would have been happily guzzling it down. They would have been, I'm getting five vaccines. It's the MAGA vaccine. And they would have been happily doing it. And it's it's really just a matter of the fact that it happened under Biden, and now because everything has to be filtered through this like culture war lens, it became politicized and it became this big, this big thing. And it's re it's really kind of fascinating to think about how that would have been different if uh, if the vaccine had rolled out under Trump as it was originally kind of they were hoping for. I mean, the vaccine was was rolled out under Trump though. I think people forget that it actually started under like it. it we did have it in yeah. late 2020. It just didn't start going out to the vast majority of people until uh, 2021. Um, but I remember in like November of 2020, uh, there were these, the videos, uh, the, the live video feeds of like frontline medical personnel getting vaccinated. Um, and it was a big deal. Uh, and Trump has literally taken responsibility for these for the vaccines too. Like he didn't go, he never came out and was like, "Oh, the vaccines are no longer under me. Don't get them." He's been taking credit for them up until you right now. You and me, uh, the three of us talking. Uh, <laughs> he's still out there. Like he he adds the addendum of, oh, "Don't get it if you don't want, or get it if you want." So not up to me, not up to me. But he's proud of his project, his operation warp speed and you know he should be quite frankly i mean i don't want to I, I don't think uh, you know i don't think the the, I, the idea that trump gets all the credit like uh, a lot of right-wingers were giving him back in 2020 uh is deserved but he definitely played a part in the vaccine rollout and it being as quick as it was uh the the idea that uh <laughs> the idea that the idea that we are in the age that we are in uh, is, is fascinating. It is incredible to just think like in the three years since we last talked, give or take three years, um, things have pretty much almost completely, it feels like, uh, we're living with everything framed in like the post pandemic era, like the, the, those months of lockdown and the subsequent, uh, you know, months of, uh, vaccine rollouts and everything, I feel uh, uh, like have it's it's totally warped people's minds. <laughs> like people are are completely different from before March 2020 and after March 2020. Like I I truly think like the 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 conspiracy theories, the alert to the right wing of certain people uh, would not have happened if it wasn't for the pandemic. Sadly. I'm still normal personally, but, uh, you know, I'm built different. 
an illustration of this like broken brain everything is hyperpartisan everything's framed in a culture war uh, issue there's a study that came out last year researchers created a pre-roll ad for youtube where they promoted a clip of trump on fox news talking about the vaccine and talking about how he was responsible for it and he got it and did and identified 1,000 mostly Republican counties with low vaccination rates. They had a control group of 500 counties, and then they targeted the other 500 counties with this ad. And in those 500 counties that got the ad, they saw over 100,000 new doses of the vaccine administered after they started running that ad. All they needed... All they needed to know was that their guy supported it and got it. And then suddenly, whatever Fox was telling them, whatever Newsmax was telling them, whatever any of their right wing pundits that they consume were telling them about how dangerous this was, it went out the door and they got it because they got this ad. It's crazy how big of an impact that had just because he was the messenger and not Biden or Fauci or some liberal telling them to get vaccinated. Right. I mean that that is an incredible thing that, uh, but also not shocking, right? I mean, uh, uh, it's a complete cult of personality uh, on the right, and has shown no real sign of dissipating either. Now that now that we're getting into this this like new uh, primary process, and Trump is has been being proven now is like still the guy in the conservative movement, and that everyone that they've tried to kind of hold hold up as being the possible successor like the DeSantis of the world is just completely falling flat on their faces right i i got no complaints about that though i'm happy that uh let let trump uh continue to be their guy uh <laughs> let it let the 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 cards fall as they may is that the saying um i mean i i think uh trump versus biden uh part deux would be the best case scenario for anyone who uh, does not want a Republican president uh, again. Um, you know, I, I think uh, Biden uh, has shown that he can easily uh, defeat Trump. And I don't know if that would be as easy if it was someone else. We already know that people will come out in droves uh, to defeat Trump. And, you know, we can, you know, the three of us can talk uh, you know, night and day for the next, I don't know how long until the election about how DeSantis might very well be worse than Trump. And at the, and at, in the best case scenario, just as bad as Trump. Um, but people aren't as familiar with him as they are with Trump. And, and just might a DeSantis candidate might not drive people out to, to vote against him. Like Trump will. Yeah. Yeah. I think, Trump's baggage from January 6th, which I, I do think has a declining impact the further we get away from it, to multiple indictments, this most recent one now also finding out this week he's caught on tape and we hear the tape for the first time, talking about it, admitting it, acknowledging that these documents that he, was, he had in his possession were classified and that he maybe should look into declassifying them. Wrapped up, I thought, delightfully by the people who published it over at CNN with him asking for Cokes to be brought into his office. I, I really liked that touch 
on that audio clip. Uh, could you bring some cokes in here, please? Like, you know, that was a just a spiteful, entertaining move that they wanted to include. That there was no real rhyme or reason that that was still in that audio clip, but they put it in there anyway. He's missing that White House Diet Coke button. He had the button in the White House. He could just press the button <laughs> yeah, to get the Diet right. Cokes. That's the thing with Trump, right? Like, he he is not the average Republican or even average Republican presidential candidate. Like, like when I think of someone like a DeSantis, like there, there is nothing about him that I, he's just like a bad guy. Uh, Trump is obviously a bad guy as well, uh, but he's got very likable qualities. Uh, he does have that sort of relatable, uh, that relatability factor as crazy as it sounds to be saying about a, a guy who is very wealthy, uh, regardless of just how wealthy he is, very wealthy, um, he is much more relatable than those other guys. It's it's he he just has this natural charisma about him, um, and, and it doesn't mean you have to like him, but it does mean you 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 need to notice that this guy is able to. Uh, use that charm and personality and that sway. I mean, he's using his charm and personality to like sway people to his side. Uh, and I think, uh, you know, uh, I don't know if there's anyone really uh, like that uh, in the Republican party other than Trump. I mean, I don't even know if there's anyone like that in the democratic party. <laughs> I mean, Ber Bernie also has relatable quality. He has a natural charisma about himself too, but it's a bit different than, uh, than Trump's Biden too, actually Biden, Biden, Biden's got a natural charisma about him, but just still not the same as uh, Trump's. Yeah. I think just his, his years of being in entertainment, being in TV, being a very public facing businessman that has made that personable, although totally offensive, often vitriolic figure that like you point out with the class issue People who don't really connect with him, especially along those lines, still love him because he's entertaining. He's funny. He knows how to work a crowd. Uh, and again, all of these caveats, he's offensive. He's sexist. He's xenophobic. He's all of these isms. He possesses them all. They still love him because of because of that personality. Right. Like you don't have to, to like the guy to just uh, uh, state facts like quite yeah. visible yeah. facts the, the guy has a natural charisma about him and that's why he's so popular um and if, if people who hate him so much can't see that um you should because that should you should want to you know know your enemy uh and that's one of the way that's the way trump has stood out i mean there's no there's yeah there's the santis fans and fans of other various Republicans, but there's not that cult surrounding them like there is Trump. Uh, and that personality and charisma that Trump has is why. Yeah, uh, it's really not hard to see why that cult of personality exists, like with that kind of charisma <laughs> compared to DeSantis, who has, who's basically a charisma vacuum. Um, but I'm kind of interested, Matt, because it's like it seems like you you seem to think Trump is kind of the ideal candidate going into uh, 2024 because so many people will be mobilized to vote against him, which I, like, I know that is a factor, but also I don't, I, I'm a little like concerned about it. I don't think it's going to be quite a, it's not going to be a cakewalk for Biden to, to repeat the same feat uh, that he did in 2020, considering now you've got the last four years of him 
being in charge and you know a lot of things have gone wrong during this time there's a lot of democrats that don't even seem to want him to run um in 2024 you've got inflation all these kind of economic issues that are still kind of plaguing everything he's very unpopular polling wise too are you not a little bit concerned that Democrats like under Biden kind of limping into that election going against to kind of revitalize Trump that might pose some problems for them there? I honestly don't think so. Like I, I may, maybe th- this will be the podcast to pull up in uh, November 2024 and I'll have to eat my words. Uh, but <laughs> you're going to get it this year. Right, yeah. But I, I did. Let me see. I did. Uh, I did uh, take great pride in calling um, the 2020 elections down to almost, ex- I was like 99% right. The only state I got wrong was Georgia. Um, so I, I, I knew, uh, pretty, pretty, uh, well going in what I, w- what we were dealing with. I, I really don't think it's going to bear out. In fact, I think it's a pretty, um, uh, I, I feel like this is a issue for people in the political bubble. I really don't think the vast majority of people view Biden in the way that uh, people in politics or even people who just really, really pay attention to politics um, do. I, I think um, the uh, people uh, left of center who have a problem with Biden, I think, are a very online cohort, to be quite honest. Um, I think the hatred for Trump in uh for the vast majority of Americans who are not the Republican base is uh, very strong. Um, and I do think again, maybe, maybe he won't win in the, with all the same States, but I do think he will win. Um, and it won't be, it won't be uh, close. You know, maybe he won't uh, completely give Trump a shellacking and win all those extra States, but it's also not going to come down to a single state. And we got a, just a surprising, but huge uh, decision out of the Supreme Court earlier this week on the independent state legislature theory. Uh, That was the case that could have given state legislatures the ability to completely control, you know, delegate allegation, overriding a lot of like federal electoral uh, processes. I mean, this was something that Trump and Trump acolytes really wanted because that's that would have been their dream scenario in 22 or in 2020, it was, hey, despite Biden winning in these states, clearly we want our people, especially in the state legislatures, to be able to override that and just send our uh, delegates and our uh, our representatives to the Electoral College. And we want to shift the outcomes of the election through the state legislatures. That's what they wanted. And thankfully, Coney Barrett, Kavanaugh, and Roberts join the liberals with Roberts writing the decision decision shutting that down. A lot of people frame this coverage as that's it. They sealed the deal. This is not happening. But like so many other things, the Republicans are just going to try a different route. Do you think that they're going to try this a different way? Or is this something that is for sure done and we could breathe a sigh of relief? I mean, without really knowing what other ways they they are thinking of going about it, I mean, I do think they're they're there there are not many options i mean what what are, do you, do you know of any of the ways they've been uh putting uh you know floating in terms of what they're planning on doing to try to get around that um cuz i'm not familiar no i think it 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 could be just challenging it a different way or going about it a different way to the supreme court 
you know, sometimes the devil's in the details and sometimes it's going through a different court to get back in there to ask for something. I mean, they'll still review circuit splits. It might just be it might just be that this is for sure done, but it doesn't feel like anything is permanent anymore, especially out of the Supreme Court. I mean, they last year they overturned Roe. I, I just I don't know what they could do. Like, it just seems like however, however they go about it, I, I can't ever sleep easy because they have, in some cases, over a billion dollars in the Leonard Leo legal network. And in many other cases, and all of these right wing judicial uh, enterprises, tens, if not hundreds of millions of dollars to bankroll just seemingly friz- frivolous suits but just going through different courts until they get to the Supreme Court and then crossing their fingers and hoping the conservatives side with them. Right. Now, I, th- I do think, um, you know, um, regardless of how it seems sometimes, it is clear that certain members of the uh, certain justices of the Supreme Court do care very much about, uh, you know, the, the aura, the legitimacy of the court. And, you know, yeah, they did overturn Roe, but none of the, a lot of those a lot of those justices uh, didn't put something. I mean, they, yeah, should they? When they were in front of Congress, they might have said, "Oh, yeah, it's a done deal," but they never actually had a, a a vote on it before for them to like go back on in just a different wording of a case. I think it would be much different if they um already ruled one way in a case and then uh, used like a technicality to to vote a completely different way. I think Roberts would uh especially be bothered by something like that and probably try to get like at the very least Kavanaugh to join him in uh, stopping something like that. I I think that would be um, out of character for some of them. I mean, again, like you said, you never know with some of them, Uh, but at the same time, I, I, that would be, uh, that would be uh, a big issue, I think for the court. And I think they uh, would want to try to avoid that. They're going to be ruling on Biden's, student debt relief stuff pretty soon aren't they either thursday or friday we'll see about i mean by the time this episode comes out it'll probably already happen right it's already uh yeah so i mean it's hard to say that's one of the things that could really hurt them you know they are prepping people to like start like it seems like like a extremely short-sighted and and weird uh maneuver that they're like gonna be putting people back, like getting people to restart their student loan payments after this big pause, like right heading into that election and then possibly getting their sort of meager relief that they were trying to give to people getting struck down. It just, it does seem like a, like a possible big sort of roadblock to them building enthusiasm when this big thing that they kind of campaigned on, they're trying to get young people out to vote for them. If that ends up like not going their way, that could be kind of a, Another big problem for them, possibly. 2024, obviously, they'd probably want to paint it as an issue that uh, clearly, look, this is this happens because Trump installed these conservative justices, and now this is what we have to deal with. It's the problem on the Republicans. I tried to do what I uh, what I said I would do, but also I've been seeing things like um, you know Biden could could still basically cancel student debt even if uh, the Supreme Court rules this way. Uh, apparently, there's some 1965 law to cancel uh, debt 
um, that uh, the Supreme Court wouldn't have anything to do with. The Higher Education Act uh, under President Lyndon B. Johnson in 1965 uh, gives the education secretary the power to compromise, waive, or release federal student loans. Um, again, I don't know. I doubt you know they would go about go about it that way, but you know there are options there. Also, just the idea that student loans are the one the one loan that you can't uh, relinquish, get rid of uh, through bankruptcy is just absurd, and that needs to change as well. Like at the very least, that should be on the docket. Then, if um, you know. Regardless of which way this goes, actually, that should be on the docket. Like that, that's just an absurd, absolutely absurd law that these you know businesses can take out millions of dollars and then just not uh, bankrupt and be absolved of any debt. Yet students don't have that same luxury. Could literally do that for gambling debts, medical debts which is good for the medical debt uh but still i'm, I'm using it as a example like any debt but student loan debt and that's just absurd i mean kavanaugh famously had uh, a huge loan his credit card loans paid off for him by some mysterious benefactor uh, many members of congress many republicans received ppp loans who had them forgiven and one of the Democrats, one of the two Democrats in the House who voted against the veto override, uh, the Republicans tried to block Biden's debt forgiveness plan in the House. He vetoed it. They tried to override the veto. They were unsuccessful. Uh, but two Democrats joined the Republicans, and one was Congresswoman Marie Perez, who also received a $50,000 PPP loan and had that forgiven. And it's just really... Uh, it's it's enraging. It it makes me want to say and do things that I shouldn't publicly, <laughs> as someone who has ninety thousand dollars of student debt. Like I just I, I for these people to receive that. Oh, I'm sorry, sixty thousand dollars. She received a sixty thousand dollar PPP loan. For some, for people who are in that situation who benefit from that system and the forgiveness of a government loan to turn around and then be like, no, you have to pay your fair share. You have to work for it. Like it, it drives me insane. If the Supreme Court rules that the the you know Biden can't cancel student loan debt in that way, then what Biden should do is he should uh, make an announcement that everyone with student loan debt will be given a mysterious benefactor, and that benefactor will take care of that student loan <laughs> debt. It seems like a very simple way to deal with this. Yeah, I like totally it. above board. And the thing is that the thing that people of uh, uh don't quite get is like this is money the government people borrow so that if the borrower I mean, excuse me if the if the lendee in this case the government says i am not seeking to recoup the debt then there is no like money that the taxpayers are on the hook for the money has already been spent. The government's already given that money to those to, to the the educational uh, institutions that these students went to. The government not going to be taking anyone's money, fill whatever hole uh, that people think is there. The government is the lender who is saying, "I'm not collecting on this debt." White hands wiped of it. That's it. No problem. I don't need any money from anybody else. 
Like it's the most ridiculous thing. The 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 way this has been yeah. framed is so ridiculous. Like if I give you, if I give Jordan and Rob, uh, twenty bucks each tonight, and you should do that. They need some cash yeah. for lunch tomorrow. We're gonna hold you to that. Right. Right. <laughs> and I then say, after saying it, this I'm going to experiment. You, right. I'm going to say, after saying I was letting you guys borrow the money, if I then say tomorrow, after you have your meal, then, eh, you know what? You guys, that was on me. Keep your 20 bucks. There's no one who has to step up to pay me back the 20 bucks. It was my 20 bucks. It could come down to standing in that case because the people who are suing are framing their, or did frame their arguments like you just said, as a taxpayer, someone who didn't, isn't in that system, isn't on the hook, whatever, don't work. They don't work for the servicers, the people who, you know, these private companies that now handle these loans. These are just like right wing chuds, like the kid with the bow tie uh, <laughs> that people share the picture of very frequently. It's people like, like, you know, right wing operatives, right wing wannabe demagogues, figures, whatever. It's people like that saying, as a taxpayer, I don't want to pay this. I mean, there is a chance. You seem more optimistic than I do, but there is a chance that the court just kicks it and says, you don't even have standing here. You're not affected by this. Why are you here? We'll see. Uh, I I just still think they're going to give us the finger. Taxpayer, there's all sorts of things you don't want to pay for. As a taxpayer, I don't want to pay for the military-industrial complex. But you know what? I don't have the ability to take uh, the U.S. Uh, military to court to say I'm not going to pay. I mean, you you can not pay, and you'll you'll be arrested eventually and go to jail for not paying your taxes. And there have been people who have done that. And and uh, I mean, listen, if these uh, people suing over student loans would like to take their stand, I would be more than happy to support their endeavor uh, of not paying their ta- yeah. them not paying their taxes. Please go ahead and try that. Uh, but you know, it is so ludicrous and ridiculous. There are things that our taxes go to all the time that we seek no direct or even uh, tangible sort of benefit from sometimes. There's all sorts of subsidies to com- to companies and businesses and contractors. And you know, you, nobody gets a say in exactly how that goes. To, to, it's just, I, I do hope that's uh, uh, what, what ends up happening, but um, we'll see, I guess. All of a sudden you have an extra or you don't have extra money, but now that you're relieved of that debt, it's like, oh, I have some more spending money that I don't have to put to that obligation. I can go out to the restaurant. I can go purchase this a, a computer or right. some product that I was looking for, you know? And, you know, I go to the restaurant or the grocery store and then they earn more money and then they hire more people to take on the increased demand. It's actually good for the economy to have it so people have more money to spend on actual goods and services in their community and it's not just going to service this like never ending debt, which is totally like obscene anyways. Like I hear these horror stories from Americans, especially with student debt who pay tens of thousands of dollars and then end up owing more than they did previously because of interest. It's just like, it's so horrendous and, and, and grotesque what people have to do. And yeah, when people have more spending money to throw around, it's actually good for the economy to go out and spend that money in different places. Um, but because the sort of the people that have this sort of um, stranglehold over discourse when it comes to the economy have this very rigid and specific idea about 
spending and and social spending and how that infects how that impacts inflation and these things um that's why these things never really these conversations never really take place in our media or in politics but it's actually good for the economy to make it so people have more money to spend on things i, I mean when we first started talking uh we brought up the the you know, we made that joke about the pandemic and last time we've spoken since like uh shortly after the lockdown era um but like and then we start talking about how much of our current day politics stems from uh what people got themselves into uh during that time period when they were home in front of the computer for longer periods than maybe usual the conspiracy the conspiracy theories and whatnot but also I do think like a major thing we're also seeing from that era is just how much the – as small as it was, the stimulus, how much that – along obviously with the pausing of student loans and all these other things like the unemployment benefits and things like that, all those things combined, I think really do carry over to today – us talking right now in June 2023 in terms of how the economy looks, how, you know, it's almost like we're living in, in a, a two separate worlds when you hear about, like, the everyday American, what they experience in terms of uh, uh, money and financial stability and the wealthy and the business owners. Like, you go online every day and, like, the tech VCs are going nuts about uh, how the economy is doing horrible. Oh, the inflation and oh, and you talk to a, a regular person and they're like, yeah, some groceries are more money. But other than that, everything's all right. Everything's doing okay. I'm doing all right. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's ludicrous. Like people are uh, a higher percentage of people are employed and a lower percentage are unemployed. Um, uh, people, typically uh, are not worried about the same things that these fear mongers are, are, are worried about right now. I'm not saying that's everybody, obviously. There are people still struggling, but the average American is sort of still okay based on, I really do think, some of that stimulus. I mean, just look at, just look at how people spent that money, how people were able to uh, go about their lives uh, and you know pay down some other debts, the credit card debt or whatever. When the average person struggles, they're actually struggling. And for 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 once, when they finally are doing not even good, just okay, they're not drowning and just just getting by. They're able to put some money aside for emergencies. Um, you know, because the average American, I, th I think it's like something like doesn't have like five hundred dollars saved up in the case of an emergency, which is insane. I don't know how what that number is now, but that's was the long time number, you know, before the pandemic. Um, and then like when a uh, 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 you know uh, a wealthy individual or a business owner talks about struggling, what they usually mean is oh they have to um maybe uh move their lifestyle from one of a multi-million dollar life lifestyle to someone making like uh just a cool million dollars oh woe is me the pain the suffering i mean it's it, it's amazing there's the the two different worlds that we live in here
whenever you see these guys whining about this stuff and fear mongering, just literally just look at how you're doing. And I'm not saying you're doing as good as them or great, but just look at how you're doing. And if you're not seeing exactly what they're seeing, then you should be like, what's, what's going on here? Something's not right. And it's, it's them who's not right. You're, you're living in reality and they're not. Yeah. On the, on the millennial specifically economic advancement, from 2020 to now this there's a story out uh today that we wanted to have you on to talk about and it showed a new study showed that the average millennials wealth grew from 64,000 to 111,000 from 2020 to 2022 but since then and you know with that we have inflation and we have all of those programs that you mentioned expiring it has begun it has begun to it has began to drop again. And what you're saying, these programs that helped people keep food on the table, to help people make ends meet, to help subsidize the increased cost of living, because wages certainly aren't keeping up with inflation, these had a net positive effect on the overall economy. And I can't stress enough, and I know you've talked about it, we've all talked about it, the stock market performance is not reflective of the economy. It's as as people, as good progressive uh, economists have said for years, it is purchasing power in the middle class. And we saw a wave of homeownership from millennials during those years because of this these programs, you know, the, the child tax credit, uh, stimulus packages, things like that that went back directly to working people. Those are great. However, there's another story we want to talk to you about, and that is new data that shows because Airbnb and these landlords and aspiring landlords, people who don't want to work for a living, have been gobbling up all these homes to such a great extent. And with inflation, people's wealth declining, people no longer having as much discretionary income, revenues have fallen in major cities all over the country year over year, in some cases close to 50%, but in many cities well over 30%. These two things together, I think, reflect these cracks re-emerging and present dire opportunities, like really serious opportunities where people could fall through these cracks again. And it stresses and underscores the importance of these programs, these social safety net programs. Like, the, like again, the child tax credit, stimulus plans, ideally a universal basic income, but we're so far away from that. But I, I'm, I'm curious on, on, from both of you, what you make of this data showing that Airbnb revenue is plummeting in some of these cities. Let it die. Let it die. Uh, urging everyone to add to that by not using, uh, not not going through Airbnb. I mean, I never quite got Airbnb as a hotel uh, replacement. It never, personally, it just never made sense. I mean, I, I, I get it for, I, I've never, I, I don't think I've ever personally rented an Airbnb. I've gone along with people who rented it and had me on as like one of their plus ones or whatever. But uh, I'm, I'm like, same with Uber. Uh, I'm so against the gig economy in general. I think it's a horrible, horrible uh, thing that we've decided to make, uh, to normalize and make it become like a, a thing that people uh, just sort of uh, take for granted as a, a regular thing in their lives. But sticking with Airbnb, I mean, I, I guess I get it if you're someone who's like, oh, you know, I just want to rent a cabin in the woods. I mean, I guess that's probably the best way to go about that or one or, or not many options to begin with. But like, 
for like the when you visit a city or whatever and you get an Airbnb, I just don't get it. Um, the the service is never as good as a hotel. The prices may look a little bit cheaper than a hotel when they are first selling it to you, but by the time they add in all their insane fees, it easily becomes more than what a hotel is. Um, you hear some of these stories and it's like, um, why are you even paying this person to treat you as if like they're doing you a favor where they like require you, some of these Airbnbs require you to like do the laundry for your towels before you leave, or they're going to charge you extra. And like, you can't use certain anemones if you're not staying for a certain period of time, even though they don't tell you that until after you book it, uh, they require, Require you to take the garbage out and if you don't do it they charge you for that it's like why don't you just go back and live at home and ask mom and dad to give you chores again if you want that experience <laughs> i mean why are you paying for it <laughs> yeah yeah it's insane you go to a hotel you go to a hotel and just go down to the lobby and you're like hey i need this and they're like right away sir we'll be happy to help plain and simple it's just why would you not stay in a hotel <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. It rocks. Yeah. yeah. No, it's just, it's totally emblematic of the way that these tech companies have been allowed to just go in and disrupt these, these industries, whether it's the hotel industry or the taxi industry with zero like oversight with zero regulation. And it's had this catastrophic effect on like housing markets as well. Like we're in this housing crisis in Canada. It's even worse than the United States uh, in many places. And when you look at a lot of the cities that are most affected by these housing crises, you look at a map showing all the, the Airbnbs that have like just infected these housing markets. And it's just been, it's like, it's completely taken over these markets and made it so much more difficult for people to actually get secure housing in these places. Cause instead of actually people like renting or, or buying uh, real estate, you have these, all these like wannabe uh, landlords operating their little like Airbnb fiefdoms rather than actually living in places um, it's had this hugely devastating effect on the housing market. And it's it's insane to me, actually, that it's been so many years of this and that the government in, in either the United States or Canada has not stepped in and be like, hey, no, we can't we can't allow this. Like, we've got to regulate this. We have to try and rein these people in. Like, no one is really having this conversation. So, yeah, I agree. Just let it let the whole thing collapse and die. And, you know, I, I think people that have staked their little personal fortunes into operating these little uh, Airbnb uh, fiefdoms, I, my heart is not going to be breaking for them if they take a big hit on that. Right. I mean, I, I do think, like, it's it's so gross, those people who purchase, like, property and build out, like, multifamily units and, and apartment buildings specifically to put it up on Airbnb. Like, I, I, I sort of get it for people who have, like, you know, they have this old family home in the sticks and they moved to like a city for a job. And so they, and they don't want to get rid of the family home. So they just have that one place that they put on Airbnb to make, you know, to, to recoup costs or whatever. I get that. I mean, I'm not, I'm, I'm not saying I get that because I'm one of those people. I don't know shit, uh, but, <laughs> but I get that. I could put myself in those people's shoes and be understanding of that situation. But I do feel like most Airbnbs are not that. Most Airbnbs seem to be people, at least now, maybe in the beginning of Airbnb, that's what it was. But it seems like most Airbnbs now are like people just trying to jump on this easy money bandwagon they heard about and are just buying up units specifically for Airbnb. I mean, 
buying up massive amounts of property just to run like uh, uh, become a landlord and run a rent a regular rental business is pretty gross to begin with. The Airbnb factor on top of all that because it's not even like stable housing for people. It's just like taking uh, units off the market and just you know bringing you know uh, bringing people in and out and not providing any stable housing for people who need it, like locals and people who work in the area. That's even more gross. I'm I'm with you though on Airbnb. I am not doing chores if I'm on a trip. I'm not doing your laundry. I'm not going to clean. I'm not doing anything. <laughs> I will pay you for a room and I expect you as the owner of this place to do everything else. That's the deal. That's always been the deal when you travel. That's why I like hotels. And the thing is, this also undercuts unions. <laughs> and if you want to find a good union hotel, you can go to fairhotel.org. Whenever you're traveling, just go to fairhotel.org, type in the city, and you will find a hotel with a union. So you're supporting a union workforce. You don't have to fucking do your laundry. You don't have to do your dishes. Everything is taken care of, ter- care of for you. Like you're saying, Matt, you need a towel go to the front desk and they'll give it to you. You're not going to get some surcharge. You're not going to get limited on amenities. It fucking rocks. I I probably wouldn't trust anyone to do my laundry, but me and my, uh, my wife, but uh, everything else I agree with. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's interesting too, the way that these, the way that like these things have been framed as being some kind of like, convenience thing like oh you're you're leaving your apartment for a couple days we'll rent it out as an airbnb and it's convenient you make a little money or like uber that was originally how uber was pitched right oh you're going you're already driving there you have this app you can just pick someone up make a little money while you're while you're going there it's it's easy and it's a way to like empower people but in practice that's not at all what it what has happened i don't even think you could even do that with uber anymore like i think they don't even allow people with uh cars of a certain age to offer them up anymore like I guess one bonus of Airbnb is you can. It still seems like you can uh, pitch a tent in your backyard and put it on put it on Airbnb. <laughs> but Uber has up those standards to the point where like they're literally running yeah. a taxi service with employees. Except, eh, don't call us a taxi service and don't call them employees. Yeah, they're just skirting labor law. These things were pitched as being this this cool tech app convenience thing. When really, like you point out, like this was a concerted effort to go into these unionized industries and destroy them. And as we saw, even like the, the like as you point as you were talking about, even when it comes to the price point, even if it was maybe cheaper at one point for either an Airbnb or an Uber, that hasn't gone away. And usually the the goal with these like disruptive tech companies in the first place was to destroy these like unionized industries like the taxi industry, at which point they can ramp up the prices. Uh, like Uber has never even made money. They never even made a profit. Like they were operating at a loss that entire time, purely being funded by VC cash being just invented out of thin air. Um, and that was the whole the gamble that these like angel investors were making, whereas that, well, yeah, we can destroy the, the unionized taxi industry and then we can actually start earning a profit on these this Uber stuff with independent contractors who are not actual employees and don't have benefits or anything like that. I mean, it's super fucking evil. And so, yeah, it's my heart does not bleed for any of these uh, gig economy companies that have started to now uh, collapse in on themselves. They present themselves as tech companies, but they barely are. Like Uber is an app, but the service is a real life physical service. Like it's the actual taxi. 
the actual car or the, the driver in the car, the vehicle taking you to and fro. And the idea that we just go, oh, you can't hold us responsible because we're just the tech company uh, is ridiculous. It's, 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 you know, I, I think whole mantra that tech companies have lived by we're like you know move fast and break stuff like oh just uh you know roll out or launch this new feature on your website and if it doesn't work or it breaks because it's not stable yet eh, you know we'll, we'll learn the hard way but it doesn't really hurt anybody and sure that works if you're talking about um you know a a, a new gif feature on Facebook or something on like some social media platform or whatever, some video upload feature or something like that. But when you're talking about real world services that your tech company facilitates, uh, Tesla is a great example of that. Um, then no, you can't move fast and break stuff because you're going to break real people. You're going to kill people. You're going to hurt real people. Uh, and I, I think that's what people need to really focus on. I mean, we saw this just last week. If was it last week, time flies so fast. Now I have no idea, but with the, the Titanic submarine or whatever it was called, like this guy threw together this shitty ass submarine that was the whole industry found out about and were up in arms about for years, sending this guy letters saying, you're not following safety protocol. You're going to be, something is going to happen. We know something is going to happen and you are going to be a blight on this industry, which we hold, which every other company apparently upholds this super high standard. And this dude was just like, no, I'm like a visionary entrepreneur. I'm, I'm moving fast, not held down by bogged down by the extra time and money that safety protocols are going to take. We're just winging it, man. That's what all inventors do. Right. And now five people are dead. And, uh, for what? Because they wanted to go see the fucking Titanic. I mean, <laughs> give me a break. It's ridiculous. And by the way, like we should also mention like People have been deep sea exploring for literally decades now. Like, is it dangerous? Sure, just like any other thing is dangerous. Like any other like uh, exploration type thing is dangerous. But I was reading how it, in 1960, two guys in a submarine literally went down to the deepest, furthest most point you can get to in the deep sea. It was something like over 10,000 meters uh, into the sea. Titanic is something like 3,000 meters. You're telling us they could do this in 1960, but we couldn't safely get it done in 2023? No, it's because of these fucking idiots who want to cut safety measures, cut costs, and try to become visionary so they can make more money. And this is what ends up happening. The email from uh, that, that got released this week from one of these experts who had been warning him was really spectacular. They write, you were wanting to use a prototype unclassed technology in a very hostile place. As much as I appreciate entrepreneurship and innovation, you're potentially putting an entire industry at risk. Stockton Rush, the CEO of this company founder and one of the guys who passed away, replied, I know that our engineering-focused innovative approach, as opposed to an existing standards compliance-focused design process, flies in the face of the submersible orthodoxy, but that is the nature of innovation. I have grown tired of industry players who try to use a safety argument to stop innovation and new entrants from entering their small existing market. Since Guillermo and I started OceanGate, 
we have heard the baseless cries of you are going to kill someone way too often. I take this as a serious personal insult. Very serious. I mean, listen, like there, there are, <laughs> were they, were they, have there been fucking idiots since the beginning of time trying out their crazy ass contraptions? There was that guy who had like a flying, who tested his flying device out by jumping off the uh, Eiffel Tower and uh, he died. Uh, you know, but I think the difference is that a lot of those guys, they're like, okay, this is my, uh, my uh, mantra. And so I'm going to put my life at risk and try this out. This guy could have went down in this, his friggin' submarine by himself uh, all he wanted and whatever. Who cares? But instead he chose to friggin' bring down, uh, you know, whatever you want to think about them based on whatever. In this particular scenario, they were innocent parties to this and they were sold a, a, a bag of lies and basically trusted this guy to get them down and back up. Uh, and he failed because he was such an innovator. Uh, I mean, again, if he wanted to do this by himself, who gives a shit? But he sold this to people, and innocent lives were lost by this idiot's uh, entrepreneurial spirit. Speaking of these kind of like tech guys breaking, coming in to disrupt uh, whatever they're whatever they're in the process of taking over. As I mentioned in like the introduction of this episode, one of the main like you've really been covering. Um, in the day in and day out basis of the Elon Musk Twitter takeover and covering all the aspects of that, the, the Twitter blue launch and all these things and really digging into the numbers of that. So I was just wondering, uh, you know, while you're still on here, how has that been for you observing? I don't even know how long it's been. And again, we've talked about this time distorting effect that's been going on. I don't even remember how long it's been since Musk took over Twitter, but how has it been for you paying attention to, Elon's uh, disruption of Twitter and taking over and the changes that he's made and the various schemes that he's tried to enact to try and make this thing uh, turn a profit while, of course, scaring away all the advertisers that were bringing in the profit in the first place. Um, how has that been for you? What would you, what would you rate Elon so far in terms of his, uh, the job that he's done taking over Twitter? Well, let me take your, your first question uh, first. And that is, uh, how has it been for me? And very selfishly, I could say on a personal level, it's been great for me. <laughs> I mean, uh, covering <laughs> this whole thing has been um, uh, uh, quite fantastic. You know, Elon Musk and I have become uh, uh, very uh, familiar with each other. Uh, we're, we're good friends at this point, I think. Uh, <laughs> uh, between the, the, uh, the suspension uh, for covering uh, the Elon jet and then uh, my coverage of the Block the Blue campaign, which led to me uh, being uh, punished with the blue check mark. Um, you know, it's been it's been a quite yeah. a quite a ride. The check mark of shame. Right. It's been it's been fun. It's been fun for me personally. But I'm also able to not look at things selfishly yeah. uh, and say, you know, it's 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 been really bad for Twitter's users. Um, the platform is, is very unstable at times. Um, the platform is full of really horrible things, uh, you know, harassment, hate speech, um, racism, sexism, uh, homophobia, transphobia, especially. Um, ever since Elon took over, you have literal neo-Nazis 
the transphobia seems to be openly encouraged right. by Elon Musk himself. Right. And you have literal neo-Nazis talking about how, you know, the old Twitter uh, would either suspend them or they couldn't be open about being neo-Nazis. And now you have them talking about not just that they're allowed, but that they're being so promoted by the algorithm that they're growing in followers more so than they've ever grown on any platform ever before. Um, you know, you have um, Elon himself uh, highlighting and helping spread conspiracy theories. Um, you have him pushing some of the worst people on the platform every time he just replies to someone by the nature of how Twitter works now, being that he's so followed and he has Twitter blue, uh, which gives him algorithmic um, uh, privileges. When he replies to someone, it brings his reply and their original tweet into a lot of people's for you feed. Uh, and he knows this. That's why he replies to all of these. It's a very sneaky way of him endorsing what they're saying uh, in order to spread it. Uh, he replies to them with some very vague comment and he knowingly does this uh, because he knows it'll go, uh, it'll push that tweet that he's replying to into a lot of people's algorithms. Um, you know, it, it's, it's, it's not a good place. And And even beyond that, if you want to even, just not even talk about like uh, if you want to take out the the content, you want to just be like, but how is Twitter as a company or a product? It's bad. It's bad. Advertisers have fleed. You'll hear all <laughs> these stories about advertisers coming back, but you can see it's not the same. Um, at one point, it was something like fifty percent of their biggest advertisers were gone completely. The ones that stayed um, were spending a lot less money. The ads you do see now is the equivalent of watching, um, you know, uh, network cable TV or network TV in like the the uh, the the nineties, early two thousands at like three in the morning and seeing all the infomercials. That's the equivalent of the Twitter ads now. Um, you know, you get uh, all sorts of herbal supplements. And uh, fly by night, drop shipping from China, scam products. Um, when it comes to people who are actually doing cool things with Twitter via the API, they have pretty much nearly all had to shut down because Elon Musk didn't want people using the API for free. Um, the API enables people to create like automated bots, good ones. People think of bots as like, oh, this is bad. Sure, yeah. scammers and spammers use that shit. And let me tell you, Elon's whole idea about Twitter Blue stopping them, the opposite has happened. They've all basically decided that spending $8 per month to automatically get into everyone's feed is a great uh, investment. So they all pay for it. So now the scammers are going right into your algorithm and not trying to like uh, advertise to you via like uh, the old method of actually paying for advertising. Um, you know, it's uh, it's it, the the API now costs money and a lot of money too. It's not like oh, you know, pay us a hundred bucks a month and you could use it. It's like something like uh, for for most people that I I've spoken to, uh, they they did end up rolling out like a five thousand dollar per month plan, which is a fucking ton of money to begin with. Yes, but before that, the only plan for uh, websites that that depended on the Twitter API was a forty two thousand dollar per month plan. So in retrospect, the $5,000 plan uh, looks a lot cheaper to people who could even afford that. But, you know, I spoke to people who, you know, they created this cool Twitter app 
got a bunch of customers, were very lucky, but they were making something like maybe like five to ten thousand dollars per month with like their Twitter app that like helped businesses with Twitter analytics or post to Twitter and whatever. And like five to ten thousand dollars per month was great for them to maybe like run the company by themselves or, or hire like they were talking about a very tiny project, or maybe like you know they run it themselves or hire someone to help them out. But when you add a forty-two thousand dollar per month expense, and that's the end of that, their their whole livelihood is gone. They have to close the sh- the close up shop. So I mean, for them, it really sucks too. And I I like to bring up the Twitter API because a lot of people think like, oh, why should I care about um you know these these developers who were able to even like make that money to begin with? Well, APIs um really help a lot of these students who are just starting or developers who don't have money or means to actually use their skills to build something and possibly create something out of it to create a platform from scratch. Need a lot of upstart upfront costs. It's a lot of money to try to build an entire user base from scratch on a platform that just depends on the technology you created. When you're using another company's API, you're basically giving an existing user base that already loves a product, just a, a new feature that they might spend, you know, five, 10, 20 bucks for a month. And it sort of evens that playing field for, you know, uh, people who decided to self-teach themselves how to program or they went to school for that and they don't want to go work for one of the big tech companies, but they don't have money to, to you know, like I said, create something from scratch. They're able to do that. So it sort of evens out that playing field in the tech industry uh, you know, on one side, you have those people. On the other side, you have all the people who, you know, mom and dad just cut them a $500,000 check for them to go and run a startup. Or they have uh, connections already. So they're already getting uh, money from, uh, you know, Andreessen Horowitz or one of the other big VC firms. Uh, it levels that playing field. And when you have a bunch of companies decide that we're going to charge ridiculous, exorbitant fees for that, then I think you you lose one of those um <laughs> play field levelers you know so there's a lot of different different uh ways that twitter uh sucks yeah. now uh besides it always breaking and uh things not working well we'll, we'll keep looking to you for the latest you've done a, a great job covering this really fascinating sometimes sad sometimes hilarious saga over at twitter and so much more where can people find you and find more of your content Sure. Uh, probably the best place to find me is Twitter, quite interestingly enough, uh, at Matt Binder. I'm also on Blue Sky and Mastodon. You could search for me there, Matt Binder as well. Um, just if you want, just Google Matt Binder. You'll find everything you need to know. You could also check out my podcasts at uh, doomedcast.com if you're interested in uh, a show that dives into the far right, white supremacist groups, uh, conspiracy theorists, uh, political cults. Uh, that's a, a great uh, podcast to check out if that's what interests you, or if you're interested in the tech scam economy with a uh, a focus on cryptocurrency being a scam, but quickly uh, uh, you know spreading out into the other various tech industry scams like uh, AI and the API fiascos. Uh, you could check out Scam Economy at scameconomy.com. The video version of all of that is available at youtube.com slash Matt Binder. So definitely subscribe to me there. And uh, yeah, that's, that, that's, that's how you can find me. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll have you back on in another three years. Sounds, sounds good. <laughs> uh, think, we'll see what happens then, right?
Hopefully the pandemic will be over by then. Who knows? Yeah. <laughs> and we'll, we'll yeah, finally yeah. be out of this lockdown. I, I mean, I haven't seen the sun in three years already. <laughs> yeah. Hopefully we'll see it in six. <laughs>